Hello, and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez. And I'm Steve Edelman. And y'all, this is the first of a two-parter. We're doing a two-parter. We're having a conversation. I'm going to say it's, we're going to talk about crowd safety And crowd safety adjacent. Adjacent. Uh, We're going to talk about things. This conversation is going to go far and wide. Uh, We're going to wander, y'all. We are, but it's (laughs) going to be very pointed wandering. Um, You know, wandering with purpose. Yes, we're we're maneuvering so we make sure we get the the landmarks along the trail so you could check off that you saw all those things. So we're going to start this with a story. We are going to start with a story. Um, so on a time. If you're making notes, as you should, because these are valuable pearls of wisdom, the heading at the top of this story is someone misunderstood how to prioritize safety. Yep. And if you're driving, you may not take notes during a safety podcast. I'm just saying. It's, All right. It's recorded. No. So yeah. don't go back. Don't take notes. All right, so this story starts with a friend of ours, um, Kathy Nosley in New Zealand, who is lovely. And we love because she's, she's smart and she's articulate, she was approached by a local TV reporter in New Zealand um, who wanted to air a story about crowd safety. And he approached Kathy because Kathy does that sort of um, safety work in New Zealand. So Kathy sent us a whole email string, and I'll read snippets of it so that you have the exact wordage. Um, so here's the TV producer in New Zealand to our friend Kathy Nosley. Um, I'm just lining up segments for the show's return next week. With tons of festivals and sporting events happening this year, we're wanting to run a story on how people can protect themselves if a crowd surge happens. How people can protect themselves if a crowd surge happens. So they wanted a health and safety guru and approached our friend Kathy Nosley in New Zealand. And they included a clip from YouTube, um, which is an ABC news clip about um, about this topic. And um, it, it's it's the uh, that particular producer talking with different people about what to do in that situation. We'll get more into that in a bit. Um, but they're like, we want to use this model that we found on YouTube. <laughs> Kathy was like, guys, that's not really what I do. I'm not really an expert in that thing. I would love to talk to you about how to avoid that coming about in the first place. In other words, how to avoid it. <laughs> right. How to avoid being crushed in a crowd by not having crowd crushes as opposed to reaching the end of the story first and talking about, you know, positioning of your feet and your arms so that if you're in a crowd crush already, how to not get hurt or killed. Um, Because that's the story the producer wanted to run and Kathy did not want to participate in that story. Because as she said, she's like, I'm not an expert in that. That is a different branch of science than than I do. Um, So here's our first landmark along our our path through the woods. We're going to talk about the hierarchy of controls. So if you go to cdc.gov and NIOSH, you can find some beautiful little upside down triangles uh, with rainbow colors that talk about the hierarchy of controls. And what this is, is uh, what to do with a hazard. And the the first, the best thing you can do with a hazard is eliminate it. 
and then you can substitute for it. You can replace what the hazard is with something else. You can use engineering control. So we're up to yellow. So we're in the middle. We can isolate people from this hazard or we can do administrative controls. We change the way that people would interact with this hazard so that they're not near it. The very, very last control is PPE. So, you know, that's the, the face mask of the COVID world. It's the hard hat of the construction site. It's, you know, the, the, the electrical suits that, that people have to do hot work in electrical panels wear. It is the last thing. It means the hazard is still there. It's still just as gnarly as it ever was, and you have to be close to it. So here's, here are these gloves that hopefully will protect you if you're really careful. It is the least effective of all of the controls, and it's the one, you know, it's sort of your, your last best chance if you haven't been able to address it any other way, which is similar to how we view this protective standing if you find yourself in a, in a crowd crush. It's not that if you put your arms up to protect your chest and stagger your feet so that you are a more squared position on the ground, that that isn't helpful if you're in that situation. But it means that you ended up in that situation and from our lens and hopefully y'all if you're listening to this also yours we want to avoid getting there in the first place uh, because PPE is the least effective of the hierarchy controls and now we can wander on down the path so th this NIOSH hierarchy of risk controls NIOSH is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health um, for Americans and well for everybody that's what it is but you know it actually applies in the U.S. first and most directly um, and it ain't new. Um, I think the inverted triangle with the pretty colored bands is, oh, 30 years old now, something around there. So nothing new under the sun about the best way to avoid a risk is to eliminate it or separate humans from the potential consequences. And the very last worst, least desirable option is not deal with the risk at all, just deal with the potential harm and try to bubble wrap yourself so that you have fewer owies. Um, but the bubble wrap solution, the PPE, the very bottom part of the inverted triangle of the NIOSH hierarchy of risk controls, that's what the reporter in New Zealand wanted to talk about. And that's what our friend Kathy Nosley in New Zealand did not want to talk about because, well, Talking only about how to survive a disaster, number one, is kind of sensationalist, and Kathy is not that. And number two, misses the point of talking about safety, which is to focus on the wide bands at the top of the NIOSH hierarchy of risk controls, the ones that are most effective, the ones that are operational. And you know, podcast listeners, Thanks for joining us because you're the kind of people who have the influence, if not the actual control, to make the decisions that would separate people from a hazard, if not eliminate the hazard entirely. So you, unlike the journalist in New Zealand, you get that the way to address a hazard in the first instance is to make the hazard less hazardous. Yep. So... We're talking about this specifically through the lens of crowd safety and crowd science. So let's go back. So if you guys listen to episode 60, which our, you should, which you should, with our dear friend, Emma Parkinson's, we talked about crowd science. It was one of my favorite pods because I could listen to her talk 
pretty much forever. Um, but she said basically, and she quoted uh, Fruin, who's a crowd science expert. She John said Fruin that there are basically two sentences that encapsulate crowd science. And the first is you need to avoid creating density and triggering sudden movements in crowds. Done. But that's not, um, you know, that doesn't go into the nuance, but that is, in essence, you want to avoid density and you want to avoid triggering sudden movements because if you guys uh, watch any of the videos and when we, um, when we spoke about barricades, I believe we put some links to those videos in, in the show notes where you can watch people in crowds reacting like water, flowing like waves and uh, bouncing into barricade that had a little bit of flex in it and then the wave bouncing back. So people as a fluid in crowd movement situations. So that's that's the, the context of which our conversation today is in. But keep in mind that the principles that we're talking about could happen with anything. We could be talking about stage roofs falling. We could talk about people on leading edges. We could talk about people working at height or on electrical. We could talk about people having heat exposure and all of those, those things. We're focusing because we are storytellers <laughs> on this particular story that, that came our way. So keeping a focus on the particular story that came our way just for the moment, um, there is this wonderful two-part dynamic, avoiding extremely crowded spaces. And if there is an extremely crowded space, avoiding helping to avoid people from sudden movements. Well, we're in the mass gathering business, we good podcast listeners and podcast creators. Uh, so the first part of that equation is a challenge for us, if not an actually undesirable situation. We have our living in gathering people together in crowds. Uh, so there is a nuance that should not be overlooked there, which is overly dense, crowds are different than crowds that are standing close by but are not in a dangerously overdense situation. Where's the dividing line? Ah, now you get into the first of many. It depends. Mm. Um, you know, you can go to the NFPA life safety code. Sorry, we're going to drop some authoritative guidance here and there's more to come. Um, you can look in the NFPA life safety code. That's NFPA 101. And there will be the standard seven square feet per person preferred distance between humans in a general admission space, you know, no chairs, just floor. Um, but it's really going to depend on how big are those people? What are they doing? Um, sure. And, and just about no gathering of that nature, are you going to get that specific thing, what you're going to get is you're going to get people crowded up toward the front and a lot of space in the back because people want to get closer. Or you may have groups of people if it's that sort of, you know, um, the, the, the orchestra groups of people on the lawn with their picnic baskets. You're going to get clumps or you're going to get a bunch of people. You're not going to get that um, like, like farmers in a field where they have the fancy machines now that Put the seeds exactly equidistance apart. That's that's not what happens, but that is what the NFPA uses to judge how many people you can safely put in a space. So we need to recognize that 
what happens in the real world is not that patterned of like tile floor. <laughs> and that's similarly a pattern and a challenge with computer-based crowd modeling. Um, it is very difficult because it frankly is so subjective and event specific, it's very difficult to determine where exactly does the most dense part of a crowd end and then the occupant load, the number of people in a finite amount of space where the occupant load loosens up enough so that you don't have to worry so much about this. There is no, you know, you can say it's 15 feet back from the stage and that's where the maximum density <laughs> ends. It doesn't work that way. We know that, but you know, respectfully, the reporter in New Zealand clearly did not, um, probably wouldn't have had the attention span for that kind of nuance anyway. And you know, it doesn't make for good, simple storytelling in the general conversations that people have every day. So it's up to us to insist that there isn't a bright line, so sorry, you actually have to think through the details of your event. Yeah, and it's also it's it's even more complicated than that. It's not just what's happening in the room at that time, but if you're on a festival site, again, going back to my conversation with Emma, is if you're on a festival site with multiple stages, at some point you're having movement between stages. So, you know, it's gonna depend entirely on what you're doing. It, and this is, you know, I, I used festival, but it could be anything. It, it could be uh your kids band concert and everybody came to hear the one band because that group brought a whole bus and that at the end of that a whole bunch of people got up and left because they wanted to go to lunch i mean so you know it the the example is is just that it's just an example it is not excluding similar activities no i mean it, it does require some thought though you know yeah. for example <laughs> you know we, we know from i'm a sports guy i know danielle is not um but at sporting events, we know that a tight match that's close right up until the end, most people don't leave until the end. And then there's a mass exodus. Um, if there's a fireworks show after the event, no matter how close the event is, people will stick around because they want to see the fireworks show. And then everyone will leave mass exodus. But if it's a blowout <laughs> and if there's no blowout, fireworks. <laughs> well, or if it's, you know, a rain delay some people will leave right away. Some people will stick around. Then it doesn't really matter how big the crowd was because the crowd that you're left with after some people exit early is more manageable. So the answer is always it depends. It, it really is. And so I can't decide if that means I know everything or I'm just confirming that I, I know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> well, it, I think, Danielle, it confirms that the more important thing is not what you know, but what you know enough to ask about. It's the question that leads to a good answer under the circumstances, because the answer is always going to change. And sure. I mean, gosh, we, we have we have dealt with people who are blessed with certainty. And, you know, kind of like a clock, they're right twice a day, maybe, but most of the rest of the time, not quite, not so much. And God bless them for their certainty. It's easier to understand. It's a more pleasing story. But yeah, not not in our world. Not really. So so going back to crowds, our friend Eric Stewart also talked about um, if you have the opportunity to take one of his crowd classes, I 
couldn't recommend it higher. Uh, it's great information. Um, uh, he also talks about how you monitor crowds. Who's in your crowd? Is it parents with little tiny kids? Is it family groups with, with older uh, family members? You know, are, are your family, are your groups full of people that are not as easily mobile? Or are in other ways, if you had a, a sudden triggering crowd move, how are they impacted by that? And your group is going to try to stay together no matter what. So no matter how hard the wave is, they may not be successful staying together, but they're going to try. And that will impact the crowd itself. So again, when 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 we get the question of if you're in a crowd crush situation, what do you do? Well, try to avoid being in a crowd crush situation is the first answer we historically give, even though it is seems like the least helpful. Um, he also talks about if you're in charge of looking at the crowd, how you look at the crowd depends widely on what your perception of what's going on is. If you're looking at a crowd straight on, what you see are the first few people who may be, if you're at the front of the stage, seemingly very close together and compressed. But if you are elevated in some way and you can see back, you can actually start to see the space and recognize that you are in a, a safer situation. That doesn't mean that something couldn't develop, but that, that what you see changes based on your perspective or, um, and location. So podcast listeners, we've been going on for, I don't know, about 20 minutes. Um, if you feel like you're sort of short on answers, Steve and Danielle, you, you've been talking, you gave us a headache. We sure and, said these things. Right. You've said words. many words, but where do they lead? Where's the guidance here? That's know. a great question. <laughs> you, you deserve better than this, don't you? I mean, shouldn't there be some answers? Yeah. I mean, we feel your pain. Yeah. Um, so... So back to the back to the story. So Danielle mentioned that there was a clip, a video clip from a Good Morning America segment, you know, a while back, you know, before the pandemic. And it was fine. You know, it, it purported to give valuable guidance and the guidance probably was right as far as it went. But it was layperson's guidance talking about how to survive a crowd crush and you know, my first reaction was, I know that there is a science to this. It's called human factors engineering. So if you ever get into your car or truck and you think, gosh, you know, the distance between my dashboard and my head is really pretty good. I can see all the instruments. It, you know, the instrument panel doesn't block my view through the windshield. This all seems to be fairly ergonomically designed for my human body, that's human factors engineering. Um, so when somebody talks about, you know, how to position your legs and raise your arms to protect your chest so that you don't get, you know, compressive asphyxia from the next person near you. If you go down, stay on your side, not on your back. I mean, that's good advice. If that, you know, it's, it's good advice. Um, you, and I will say that there were some nuggets there that are similar to what we will share with people. And it, it comes down to, you know, touting your situational awareness and planning, um, you know, 
but translated into layperson. So in this particular, they're like, be aware of where your exits are. And y'all, if you're not, if when you go into a place, please, please do that near the grocery store. There are exits at the back. It's amazing. And have a plan if something goes sideways. You get, you know, you don't need to go out the way you came in. And the the other was uh, you know, if things seem to be getting hairy, they probably are. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was I was like, okay, sure. I yeah, nothing wrong solid. with that. It's solid it's solid advice, but we want you guys to think about it more. <laughs> you know, please always know where the exits are though. Hopefully we we talk about that at like every single event we ever do. It's like, look where where are your exits? Anyway, go on. <laughs> so I, I'm watching this, you know, what seems like pretty solid advice from my experience. Um and you know, I'm a soccer player, recently retired, but still very much a player in my mind. And, you know, I played <laughs> goalie. The term for soccer goalies is to make yourself big. So, you know, when you're trying to block a shot, you put your arms out, you put your legs out, you know, you thrust your chest out as much as you can. You make yourself big so that the ball is more likely to hit you than to go past you into the net. And that's the gist of the advice if you're in a potential crowd crush situation, is make yourself big. Protect the area around you as much as you can by spreading your arms and legs enough so that you create some space between your body and the next body. Make yourself big. So there, you know, if you're a sports person and you prefer sports language, there you go. Um, It's not wrong, it's probably right, But the emphasis, for me at least, is probably um, because the people who are having that conversation in that segment, none of them were human factors engineers. There were no science-oriented people there at all. And the experiential learning is important. A lot of us rely very extensively on on on-the-job training and other forms of experiential learning. You know, it's one of the reasons the Event Safety Alliance is so big on creating written guidance, because we are in an industry that has for so long relied on, you know, essentially cultural wisdom and and folk ways passed from generation to generation. We can do better. Um, And so one of the things that I wrote in my emails to Kathy Nosley, our friend in New Zealand, is they already have a segment that gives advice, which is probably right. And none of us who, at that point, there were a bunch of us on the email string trying to help, um, none of us have the right science background to provide anything more than our own anecdotal experience and our beliefs about what works, which have been tested but not often enough to give scientific validity, we're all just doing our best. And that made us revert to the original point, which is the reporter simply is focused on something which is not good. It's not ideal to skip the first four of five layers of the NIOSH hierarchy of risk controls because the first four layers are first for a reason. And if you go directly to PPE, to number five, to spreading your arms and legs and making yourself big in a crowd, well, then you've really got yourself in a bad situation and you're trying just to survive it at that point. Um, 
And the reason that Danielle and I wanted to have this conversation, aside from the fact that we thought it was neat, was because, because when the Event Safety Alliance talks to people, usually we're talking to event professionals. And sometimes I assume we event professionals will you know, send a, a pod to somebody who's not in our industry. And hopefully they say, wow, that's, that's smart. I didn't know how the sausage was made. Um, but I think mostly we're probably talking to our peers, our colleagues, and we're very grateful for you guys. In this instance, we're grateful for you guys because you're the ones who can avoid sinking to the PPE level of safety in this analysis. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, and to go back to the news thing is they, they have a very different job. They are back to my water thing. They're riding a wave about interest in a specific thing. That is not what we're doing. We're, we're capitalizing on the wave, but we're, we're not, uh, we, we want to, talk about the planning that goes into it and how to use those other hierarchy options to avoid that wave crashing into the people at the end of it. You know, and 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 I have noticed some improvement in the media, but in general, you still hear things like stampede, which, you know, I have actually started to hear people uh, say that, it's not actually a stampede and a stampede is not what people are dying from. They're getting, they're, they're asphyxiating, which is what the science and, and the evidence has proven is that people in these situations suffocate. They are not being uh, squished uh, on the ground unless right, they, they don't get trampled to death. They don't get trampled to death. They may get asphyxiated on the ground by people being on top of them, but they are not being trampled by running feet. Um, they may, they, somebody may get hurt that way, but that's not what people are dying from. And, you know, and, and just address the stampede issue just for one second, mm -hmm. Danielle, because as we record this, there, there have been two mass shootings in California in the last several days. Um, so we're recording this on a Wednesday. It is particularly common to hear the stampede language in the context of active shooter situations and the responses mm -hmm. of crowds. Right. Riddle me this. What would you do if you thought you heard gunshots? In an ideal situation, wouldn't you run? Right. Not necessarily. I mean, it's the... what we train, not we. It's what we are trained in school to do. Run, hide, run, fight. Run is the hide, first one. Fight. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it is what our federal government in the U.S. teaches us to do. And the greatly preferred outcome is to run. Escape. Hide is a distant second choice. And fight is distantly behind fighting yeah, the, uh, behind the, they're um, like earthquake things they're they're factors of 10 <laughs> in terms of preference so so yeah you that's the the you would expect people to you would expect that situation to take it back to Emma's language to trigger a sudden crowd movement so that leaves us with a sudden crowd movement see <laughs> it, it does um And that's why we, again, focus on things like either avoiding the hazard. Well, again, that gets us to mass gathering. So we're not going to do that because we're in the mass gathering business. So let's drop down a level. Physical controls that separate people from the hazard. Well, now we can talk about site design. 
so that we manage crowd flow. Mm -hmm. We can talk about barricades. We can talk about avoiding choke points. We can talk about lighting that tends to draw people towards one area and away from another area. We can talk about communications. Yeah, that's where I was going. I was like, we could talk about administrative controls where you tell people when they're coming in how they can get out. Yep. Um, you know, at that time when they're super excited and invested in trying to figure out where to go is a great time to say, and when you leave, you can go this way or some other, you know, like the airplane thing, your closest exit may be behind you. <laughs> and Steve is doing the thing with the flashlights, <laughs> you know, flashlights here, but you know, <laughs> making airplane gestures. It, it, so, so again, the answer is always going to be, it depends, but there are not uh, there are tools, there are things you can do, there are things you can apply to every situation, um, some of which will cost money, but some of which really are not expensive. Um, but we did also want to talk about how there is this sort of, well, it costs money, so we can't afford it, so we're not going to do it. We're not going to do the safety because we can't afford the safety but we're still going to do the event. Yeah. So Danielle, is that a good idea? That's, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us why, Mr. Science. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and I work in a, in a smaller budget scale than the, the big festival people, but there are still ways you can manage and identify risks at, at every level. You know, I mean, it's, things are scalable. So you need to find out what is appropriate, but that does not mean you're like, eh, it's never happened here. So we're going to ignore it. When, if, if it's never happened here and you're in Florida and what you're talking about is a glacier falling on your state. Yeah. That's probably not a realistic risk, but there are a lot of other things that, just because they haven't happened to you, the answer may be they haven't happened to you yet. Yeah. I mean, the distinction that you're drawing there is between a black swan versus... Highly unlikely. <laughs> right. You know, I'll unpack that in just a second. A black swan versus something that simply hasn't happened to you, paren, yet. Close paren. So black swan, for the uninitiated... Um, a black swan is a term coined by um, a theorist named Nassim Talib, T-A-L-E-B, in a book conveniently called The Black Swan. Um, and a black swan, in a nutshell, is something that has three elements to it. The first is something which is highly unlikely, if not unprecedented, happens. Um, when that thing, which is highly unlikely, if not completely un unprecedented, does happen, it is highly impactful, meaning it rocks our world, it shakes our beliefs and foundation, you know, right to their foundation. And when this thing, which is highly unlikely, if not unprecedented, does happen and shakes our beliefs to their core, suddenly a cottage industry of self-proclaimed experts crawls out from under their various rocks and says, notwithstanding that this thing never happens and who would have ever thought that it would, we've been sitting on a solution all this time and here it is for the modest price of whatever it is they're trying to sell their goods yep. or services for. This is the solution and 
when this thing that never happens happens again to you, um, you'll be prepared if you buy our stuff. And to take this out of the event world entirely, September 11th would be in this category. Many things changed after September 11th because people hadn't thought it was possible. The Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting um, arguably is another example. Um, You know, there had not been an incident like that from an elevated platform in 40, 50 years. Um, That seems like a good long time. So not completely unprecedented, but it had not happened that way ever at a live event um, and hadn't happened at all in many, many, many years. So, so there you go. There's, there's your black swan. And and that's the thing that people tend to ask a lot about, um, because it is on their mind because it was impactful, not just physically, but also emotionally. So people are more concerned about it. And that is of course, what the news people are, are responding to is that people are concerned about this. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, different ways to consider your risk for crowd surges, crowd crushes, crowd movement, which is where we start this conversation is how's your crowd moving through your space? Um, is there anything else? Uh, our, our, our good friend Kathy declined to participate in that thing. And, and I believe followed up and said, if you'd like to talk about the other, the, the pre aspect, I'd be happy to, to help to have that discussion. I have no idea. I have no idea where that ended up, but that is what, where my participation in Ella ended. Yeah. And I'll tell you, because I've been in Kathy's situation a number of times where, you know, there's some widely covered incident in the world of live events. And, you know, the media finds me through the Event Safety Alliance, which is very nice. And, you know, I like having that bully pulpit. It's good to talk about safety. And one of the things that invariably the reporter asks is, what can be done, you know, what I'm rephrasing, they invariably ask, how often does this, whatever this tragedy happens to have been, how often does this occur? And I now have a stock answer. It's not snarky. It's just a stock answer because I get asked so often. And my stock answer is, if this was as often as your, if this was as frequent as your question suggests, wouldn't you and I know each other before today? Wouldn't we have spoken about something before today? And usually there's a bit of silence at the other end as they think about that. And then they realize, yeah. Uh, And then I say, all right, let's now look at the converse. Aren't there a lot of events? And we can go through the event calendar of whatever city you're calling from. And there will be a lot. You know, it doesn't matter where, there will be a lot of events. So what I try to get you know, the well-intentioned reporters to think about is, is this particular shiny object something which is so frequent that they need to cover it as, everybody cover your heads because this is going to happen all the time everywhere? Or is this truly news because it's infrequent, it is uncommon. Um, So we're gonna tell you a story, but it should not change your life. It should maybe change your awareness. Um, 
but this is something that happens infrequently. And I like to provide that context because, you know, to my mind, somewhat, not amazingly, but impressively for an industry that has relied on folk wisdom and on-the-job training as long as we have, I believe we run a good, safe industry considering some of the very high risk profiles that we assume in many of our events. So I think yeah. that context is worth conveying if you're ever in the situation where somebody asks you, you know, does this sort of thing happen all the time? How do you work in this industry? How do you sleep at night? That's my answer. Yeah, there are so many more events that happen uh, where, quote unquote, nothing happens, which means that the event happened and it was lovely. All right. So we're going to wrap up part one there. Uh, part two is going to involve cheese. So something to look forward to. Uh, if you want to email us, our email address is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Our website is eventsafetyalliance.org. Come find us on social media. If you want to see us in person, both Steve and I have stuff coming up. I will be at SFEA in Myrtle Beach in the middle of February. Steve, you will be at NAM in... April in Anaheim. April, and I'll be at USITT in March, and we would love to see you. You know, come on up and say hi. I'm one of your pod people. <laughs> we we um, do find that very flattering. We 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 love. It. It's like oh, we're already on the pod. That's so cool. All right, uh, thank you all very much. We will see you in part two, and stay safe, everybody. 